0: will not you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 with me this morning? We're back in 1 Peter chapter 3 and we're turning the page, we're beginning a new section of the letter today that will essentially carry us on until the end. And the topic from here on out is suffering, Christian suffering, especially at the hands of others. All of our paths will intersect suffering sooner or later in life. And when your, when your time comes, these are perhaps the best chapters in all of Scripture on the matter Peter has briefly referenced this topic earlier back in chapter 1. Now it's really going to come into focus. And as he reintroduces the subject again, his first concern in our verses today is on unjust oppression. Unjust oppression. Unjust oppression and suffering are realities in life. But when it happens to those in the world, they don't really know what to make of it. They cannot compute the fact that the good suffer and even lose in the end. They have no eternal perspective, and therefore they have no hope when it comes to the good, suffering, and justice. Perhaps this leads them to devise fairy tales, where there's always that happy ending. Everything about that—they they always want that happy ending. Take the classic story of Cinderella, that the classic fairy tale ending. Sparked my curiosity when I when I thought of this. I did a little research. It's interesting to find out how far back this story goes. I'm sure all of you know are familiar with the story from the 1950 Disney movie. Cinderella, she's an only child. Her mother dies, so her father remarries. Then her father dies, so she's left behind with a wicked stepmother and two wicked stepsisters. And they they torment her. They persecute her. They force her into servitude in her own house. But she remains good and pure. It's it's a classic tale of, of the good, suffering, injustice, and being oppressed. Meanwhile, the king organizes a ball for his son, Prince Charming, to meet all the women in the kingdom in order to find a bride. And Cinderella wants to go, but her stepmother says, well, you have to have a dress. So her animal friends, whom she has, of course, befriended, help her fix a gown that her mother used to wear. But before the ball, her stepsisters destroy the gown, leave Cinderella behind in tears. Again, the good are persecuted by the evil. But this time, her fairy godmother shows up, gives her a blue dress, glass slippers, transforms a pumpkin into a carriage, all of her animal friends into horses, Also, she can attend the ball. Yet this magic will wear off at midnight, so Cinderella goes, and what do you know? She finds the prince. They dance. They presumably fall in love. But midnight comes, so she has to flee. As she runs, she loses the glass slipper. The prince then finds it, sets out to visit every house in the kingdom until he finds the girl who fits the shoe. Fast forward a little bit, the stepmother and stepsisters find out that it was Cinderella's shoe, so they lock her away. Again, the good are are persecuted, but she breaks free. She finds the prince, tries on the glass slipper. It fits. They get married. They live happily ever after. The end. I'm sorry if I've ruined it for any of you if you haven't seen the movie. But see, it's a story of the good being oppressed, but they win in the end. That the righteous are rewarded in the end. Classic tale. You may be surprised to hear this story goes way back. It was part of Mother Goose's Tales from 1697, it was also adopted into Grimm's Fairy Tales of 1812. Although you can probably imagine that the Grimm tale version is a little darker. As for example, in the end of the story, the two wicked stepsisters are blinded by birds. But this tale goes back even further than that. It can, found in, it can be found in ancient Chinese folklore. And there's even a version of the story that goes back to the ancient Greeks. A writing from the first century BC tells of a a girl who lived in a Greek colony in Egypt. And as the story goes, she was bathing one day and an eagle snatched one of her sandals and flew away with it to the city of Memphis. And the eagle dropped the sandal onto the king's lap. And the king was so amazed by the beauty of the sandal, he sent men out in every direction to find the woman whom the shoe belonged to. And when he found her, he made her his wife. It's pretty interesting. Interesting to learn that such a story has propagated throughout all these different cultures. And why is that? Perhaps the story in general strikes a chord. The righteous, the good, the fair, suffer injustice all the time. Yet the story is encouraging because in the end, the good prevail. And the good win. Everyone wants to believe that. And everyone wants to believe that. It will happen to them. This hope is the only thing those in the world have to cling to, that somehow in life they will prevail. But here's the catch. This is called a fairy tale for a reason. Life doesn't work this way. Oftentimes, most times, this doesn't happen. The righteous do suffer harm, and they don't prevail. The good are tormented. They suffer loss, even at times being killed. They don't have a happy ending. So then what? What do you make of this? How do you respond in life when there is no fairy tale ending? What do you do? Peter is writing to Christians in this situation. They're trying to do good. They're trying to follow the Lord. They're trying to be pleasing in his eyes, but yet they're being persecuted for it. And they're suffering... Injustice, truly, for simply following the Lord. So what should they do? How should they comprehend and think of this suffering? And more importantly, how should they respond? And Peter's going to fill us in. Understand the stakes here. It's hard for us to grasp because we don't, at least not yet, live in a society that heavily persecutes us us for our faith. We get a little, but how many people do you know that have been imprisoned or killed because of their faith? Things were different back then. They were vastly in the minority. They were hated, persecuted. Eventually, many of them were martyred for their faith. And so understand the temptation to abandon Christ was high. Who wants this? Who wants to die like this? It's just too much. The cost is too high. It's, It's time to cash out. It's time to go back to just blending in with the world. This is just too much. This whole following Jesus thing. But that would be the wrong response with eternal consequences. Instead, there is a right way to comprehend unjust sufferings, and there's a right way to respond to unjust sufferings. And, and Peter's going to tell us in our passage for this morning. So with that in mind, just read along, follow along with me as we read our passage for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. He writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready To make a defense through everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and reverence. And keep good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better, if God should so will it, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. We start in verse 13. It expresses a general principle. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question, expects a negative answer. No one. Of course, no one's going to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good. Uh, generally speaking, that's true. If you're kind to others, they're going to be kind to you. This is conditioned on, on you being zealous for what is good. This pictures you having a passion, a zeal, for that which is right in God's eyes. And if you do that, you can expect no one to harm you because who's going to go around persecuting someone who's just doing good, just doing good things? But Peter doesn't end at verse 13 though because he knows sometimes it happens. Some people actually will seek to harm you even though you're, you're only doing good. The beginning of verse 14 admits this possibility. He says, but... In contrast to that, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, stop there, he's saying it it can happen. You may suffer purely for the sake of doing what was right. You're just trying to do what was right, or you're being made to suffer for it. The verb for suffer in verse 14, it's in the optative mode in the Greek, which I'm sure you all know. It just means it's extreme doubt. It's expressing extreme doubt. And so he's saying, look, chances are it's not going to happen. Chances are you won't be persecuted just for trying to do what is good. It's not the norm in life. Usually people want to harm you for doing evil, not for doing good, but but it's a possibility. That, That chance is there, and he wants to prepare them for it. It happened to Jesus. Peter himself preached in Acts 10.38 that here is Jesus. He was just going around, doing good, performing miracles, yet they killed him for it, knit him to a cross, suffering for doing good. Happened to Peter himself in Acts chapters 3 and 4. He was just, likewise, preaching the truth, healing the sick, doing good. But they arrested him and, and beat him for it. Why? He was just doing good things in God's eyes. But he says, sometimes you may suffer for the sake of righteousness. It may happen. Happened to Jesus, happened to Peter, still happens today. And I'm sure you, you know this. Let's take, for example, today you were to take a stand for the truth of God's word. You're talking to a friend and, and you, you tell them, you know, you know, according to the Bible, the best way to stop abortion, STDs, and AIDS is just to abstain from, from sex outside of marriage. Did you know that? Now that's good, that's right, that's true, that's what the Bible says. But if you were to actually say that today, in the public square, for example, you would be laughed out of town. They would slander you, they would persecute you, just for saying that. If you were to stand against abortion, homosexuality, as sins, people will persecute you, they will hate you. You see, the world's definition of good doesn't always line up with God's definition of good, So sometimes you may be even persecuted for simply doing what is right in God's eyes. Sometimes Peter says you may suffer for the sake of righteousness, so be prepared for this. And that's why he's writing. If you're not prepared, it can catch you off guard. It can even shipwreck you sometimes. Peter wants these Christians to be prepared, both in how how they think about such persecution and in how they respond to it, so that's why he's writing. He's writing to fill them in on, on that response. And, and we likewise, we need to be prepared. And we need to be filled in too. And our verses are going to do that for us. The rest of our text, verses 14 through 17, are going to fill us in on how to respond to this unjust suffering. And that's what we're going to see from verses 14 through 17. Peter's going to give us six ways to respond to unjust suffering. Six ways to respond to unjust suffering. You may not always be able to avoid such suffering. But you can avoid dishonoring God in it, in your response. And that's going to come by getting these six responses right. Six ways to respond to unjust suffering. No catchy outline for you, just pretty straight from the text. Number one, remember you are blessed. First way, first right response, remember that you are blessed. From verse 14. Look how he continues. He says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, what does he say? You are blessed. Now, what's that about? Now, what, what's he trying to say here? That, that doesn't quite add up. Because the normal reaction to suffering is to think that you're cursed. Think that God's angry with you. Not to think that God is blessing you. So, so what does he mean? Blessed, it's that very common biblical word. It can mean happy or fortunate. It's like he's saying, you know, when you're suffering for the sake of righteousness, God's fortune is upon you. How does that work? How on earth can that be the case? How could you be considered blessed? Well, understand this first off. Peter's not saying that suffering is good, suffering is not good. Suffering doesn't make people happy or blessed. Lost suffer all the time, but they're not blessed. Suffering is an unavoidable evil brought about by sin and its consequences. It's not good in and of itself. But still, what is Peter talking about here? Well, well consider this. What is the greatest blessing possible in all of life? It's eternal life. Eternal life, it's got to be the greatest blessing imaginable. A person could have all the riches in the world, but if he doesn't possess eternal life, he's not blessed. And conversely, someone could have nothing in this life, but if he has just that one thing, eternal life, he is most blessed. See how it works? Possessing eternal life is the ultimate blessing, even in this life. And now let's ask, how does one come to possess eternal life? There's only one way, and that is by believing upon God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, yet died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, rose from the dead. And if you look upon Jesus in faith and in trust, God will forgive you of your sins and grant to you by his gracious gift eternal life in his Son, so, so get this, okay, you, 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 that sounds good to you. you, you commit to follow Jesus, you want eternal life, maybe who doesn't? So you sign up, okay, I'll, I'll buy into that, but how do you know that your commitment, that your faith in Christ is genuine? See, the Bible speaks of many people who have a false faith, a false commitment to Christ, So how can you be assured that you are a true follower and that you truly possess this promise of eternal life? That's an important question. One way is through suffering. Let me explain. False believers don't endure suffering, especially suffering for the sake of Christ. They cash out. They they flee. They abandon Christ when that suffering comes. Like the parable of the soil says, the seed sown on the rocky places. They're out of there. False believers don't endure suffering for the sake of Christ. But those who are his true followers, no matter what, even if you are made to suffer greatly, unjustly for the sake of Christ, you can't stop following Jesus. You will never abandon him. You just can't. Where are you going to go? There's nowhere else to go. Therefore, when you are made to suffer for the sake of righteousness and yet you endure, far from this proving that God is angry with you, this assures you that God has blessed you with eternal life. The reward of eternal life in heaven is promised only for those who follow Jesus and endure, so your suffering actually confirms your blessing. So indeed, like Peter says, even if you do suffer for the sake of righteousness, so long as you endure, then yes, you are blessed. Your suffering is not a sign of of present punishment. It's a sign of future blessing. But that blessing you possess even now through your faith in Christ. So that's how you can even still be blessed. If you don't follow, if you don't buy this, if you don't believe me, let me show you from Scripture what I'm talking about here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It'll reinforce what we're learning here in First Peter chapter three. Matthew chapter five. Peter's words here seemingly channel Christ's words from the Sermon on the Mount, where we see a very similar passage. very similar teaching that will shed light on what we're talking about here. Matthew chapter five. The Beatitudes. I'm sure you're familiar with them. When you get there, make your way down to the end of the list. And we'll start in verse 10. Matthew 5.10. He says, Blessed are those, same word by the way, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The same thing that Peter is saying. You're blessed if you've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For, he says, for theirs is The kingdom of heaven. What does he point to? He points to that eternal future reward. Verse 11, blessed, again, same word, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And notice again, he's talking about unjust suffering. It's false. It's it's, it's not true what they're saying against you. But they're doing it because of Christ. This is unjust suffering on account of Christ. And he says, if that happens, you're blessed. Verse 12, he says rejoice and, and even be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And What does he point them to? Not their present circumstances or what they can get out of it here now. He points them to that future reward as their source of joy and gladness, even in that unjust suffering. Same thing that Peter is saying. You're assured of your heavenly reward as you are uh, as you endure that persecution for the sake of Christ, that makes you blessed. You're blessed. Still, let, let's keep going. James chapter 1. Let, let's keep going with this. I want to show you more. James chapter 1. James, when he's writing his letter, he himself actually parallels the Sermon on the Mount in many places. He's really impacted by the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see, again, similar thoughts here in chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Verse 2. Familiar, famous verse. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance, there's that key word, by the way, Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hop down to verse 12. And then he says, Blessed, there it is again, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. He doesn't say blessed is the one who suffers. You're not blessed just because you suffer. He says blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For, Once he has been approved, that's what happens when you endure, by the way. You endure to the end. You're approved. For once you've been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There it is. Christ promises eternal life for faith in him. Even though you may suffer on his sake, you're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to abandon him. And he counts you blessed for that endurance, for trusting in him. James chapter 5. Just turn the page. James chapter 5. You all know about Job. Suffered more than any of us for sure. How does James end his letter almost? James chapter 5 comes back to the topic of suffering. Look at verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. There it is, those two words together. Suffering, patience, suffering, endurance. He says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. We count those, we reckon those as blessed who who endured. Not those who suffered. I mean, a lot of people suffer. But we count them blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. And have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. No one suffered more than Job. No one was blessed more than Job because of it and his dependence on the Lord and now that eternal reward. We'll make your way back to 1 Peter. You're you're almost there. Just turn a couple pages to the right. But then jump to chapter 5. Last verse here to reinforce this teaching here. 1 Peter chapter 5. Like I said, suffering is his theme from here on out and he ends it with this word of encouragement to those who are presently suffering, for the sake of Christ, especially, First Peter chapter five, and look at verse ten. He says, "After you have suffered for a little while, let's talk about this life. The God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen." And establish you, just like James said. God's going to finish the race, finish the course for you in His sovereignty. And after you've suffered, you will see that true meaning of blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And you can make your right way back to First Peter three now. So I've labored this this first response to unjust suffering on purpose because it's a really it's a big deal. It's monumental to grasp when you encounter that. Unjust suffering in life, when you're persecuted simply for believing God, when you're harmed, just because you sided with the truth. the first thing you need to do is to just remember that you're blessed. Just remember that. You're, you're still blessed. as you endure the trial, be assured that your reward in heaven is great. You may not have that fairy tale ending in this life. You may suffer harm even to the point of death. It's possible. But God himself promises in no uncertain terms to bless those who cling to his son through thick and thin and endure to the end. So number one, our first response to endure suffering Remember that you are blessed. Number two. Second response, do not fear or worry. Do not fear or worry. Also from verse 14 where he continues, he says, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Second response to unjust suffering, it's a negative response to do not fear or worry. However, that's pretty much the natural response when we suffer. We start getting scared. We start worrying about the future. What's going to happen? How's this going to turn out? Is everything going to be okay? Those are the typical thoughts racing through the minds of those in peril. These same thoughts once raced through the minds of the Israelites. In some of your Bibles, this verse is in caps lock. That's because it's showing Peter is referencing Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12, which recalls a shaky time in Israel's history. Let's tell you what was going on. The kings of Israel and Syria wanted to make an alliance with King Ahaz of Judah against the invading Assyrians from the north. But Ahaz refused to make an alliance with them. And, and that, of course, angered them. So Israel and Syria turned on him and threatened to invade Judah. As a response to that, Ahaz wanted to make an alliance with those invading Assyrian forces, te- technically the bad guys. But Isaiah stopped him and warned him and said, Not so fast. You do not want to make an alliance with the evil Assyrians. And Isaiah says to him in Isaiah 8:12. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Don't don't fear what the Israelites and Syrians fear, the Syrians. Rather, he says in, in verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he should be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. Isaiah's message to him is, look, don't be afraid. Don't fear the Assyrians. Don't worry about them. Fear God, but then rest in God and trust him. And Peter is saying the same thing. When you're made to suffer, don't fear. Don't fear their intimidation, as the NASB puts it. Don't worry. Instead, fear God in a good way and then trust in him. Rest in him, like Isaiah said, as your sanctuary where nothing can move you, nothing can shake you. Peter also says, "Don't be troubled, do not be fearful, do not be troubled. This word means to shake up or to agitate. I remember I was a kid, my sister would always just overload her iced tea with sugar. She would put in so much and at the bottom, you could literally see like a quarter inch of sugar just resting at the bottom of her iced tea. And just resting at the bottom, of course, then she'd take a straw or a spoon and she would stir it up. She would kind of shake it up or, or just agitate it. That's this word here for troubled. It means to spin around, to be agitated, to be stirred up. And Peter's saying that that's not part of the right response. Don't be shaken up like this, stirred up, out of control. Don't be fearful. Don't be worrisome. Those are symptoms of not trusting God. If you really did rely on him, nothing can shake you, for he is like a mighty fortress. So the point he's he's making here is, is fight back those Those thoughts of of fear and worry and anxiety. Instead, trust him. Run to God as your shield. This leads us right into the third way to respond to unjust suffering. Trust God's suffering. Or, excuse me, trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. It's the natural uh, next response after not fearing and worrying. Put off the fear and worry and then put on a trust in God's sovereignty. This comes from the beginning of verse 15. He says, don't, don't fear, don't be troubled, but, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Let me stop there for now. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And we've got to start off here asking, well, what does that mean? What exactly does it mean to, to, to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts? Start with the word sanctify. Sanctify means to set something apart. Basically, it means to to separate something, to set it apart. For instance, at our house, we have a separate set of of utensils and and cups and bowls for our daughter, for our infant. They, They look different than our normal dinnerware. We keep them in a separate place, they're set aside for her use only, they're non breakable. So you could say that they are sanctified. They're, they're set aside for some special purpose. That, that's the root meaning, the basic meaning of to sanctify, to set it aside for a special purpose. And what about Lord? What does Lord mean? Lord, as you probably know, means master or sovereign. A Lord is one who rules, one who is in charge, one who is in control. To call someone Lord is to acknowledge them as master and ruler. So put this all together. And we are being told to... Set aside Jesus as ruler or master in our hearts. We are to regard Jesus in a special way as the one who rules over our lives. That's what this means. Don't get this wrong. We are not making Christ Lord. He already is Lord, and you don't have anything to do with that. He already sits in power. He already rules over all. The question here is, will you recognize him as the Lord over the universe? And will you acknowledge him as the master over your life and then respect him as such? This means to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It's a recognition of his lordship over all things. It is a happy submission to his will and his rule over all things. It is a show of allegiance, reverence, and reverence. And obedience. In the end, everyone's going to do it. Believer, unbeliever, they're all going to confess Christ is Lord. Remember Philippians two, nine through eleven. He says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And verse eleven, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone's going to do it. The difference is that Christ's true followers confess him as Lord now, in this life, willingly, joyfully, gladly. They they want Jesus to be Lord over their lives because he's powerful and because he's good. I mean, he's a good master. And when unjust suffering comes, he's the one you need to turn to and trust in. And that's that's Peter's point. This is a response of trust here, of trusting in his sovereignty, his control, his rule over all events. When those unfair circumstances come, you're still believing through this that God is on the throne. That Jesus is still in control and that your Lord knows what he's doing. Clearly, you can see this is a response of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him especially in suffering. So you can see how our second and third responses go together here. And There you are. You're a Christian. You're living in the world. You're trying to do what is right. You're trying to please the Lord. Yet your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your family members, they persecute you for your faith. Maybe they verbally demean you. They slander you, ridicule you. Maybe they hurt your career. But if you want to respond rightly, don't fear don't fear them, don't worry about these circumstances. Instead, regard Jesus as the true Lord of your life, the one in control of all these things. Remember that he's in control, that your suffering it's not an accident, and simply trust in your king's sovereignty and always good purposes. It sets you on the path to endure any difficulty. And so, number three, the third way you you need to respond in those times of unjust suffering is to trust God's sovereignty, trust Christ's sovereignty. Number four here, the fourth way to respond. From verse 15, be ready to defend. Be ready to defend. Read verse 15 with me. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. This is a helpful reminder. Some people wrongly think of trusting in God's sovereignty as an excuse for inactivity. They say to themselves, oh, you know, God's sovereign. I don't have to do anything then. I'm just going to kick back and just watch. Not so fast. And to the contrary, God calls you to action, and his sovereignty is the only thing that ensures your actions can have any real effect. In this case, when you are suffering unjustly for the sake of righteousness, God calls you to defend. You are called, verse 15, to make a defense. And the word in the Greek is apologia. We get the word apology from it. So, you are called to make an apology. But no, this does not mean you are to go around apologizing to people for being a Christian. Someone asks you, you know, why are you a Christian? I'm sorry, I know, I know, it's weird, it's wrong, it doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, it just works for me, though. Not what we're talking about here. Rather, an apology, and really the true sense of the word, it's an intelligent defense of what you believe and why. You are explaining what you believe while addressing misconceptions, removing objections, and so on. And some people call this practice apologetics. We get that from this word, from this verse, defense of the faith. Now here's the thing. When most Christians hear this, they they kind of start to panic. They think to themselves, yeah, I can't do that. I I can't defend the faith. I didn't go to Bible college or seminary. I can't answer all these questions. I'm not an expert here. This isn't for me. They get scared and intimidated just at the idea of testifying for their faith. That's not what Peter's saying here, though. He's not saying you have to be an expert theologian. He's not saying you have to solve every problem under the sun or answer every objection. You don't need a Bible degree to do what he's talking about here. So, so then what is he talking about? Now remember, this is all in the context of suffering. And he says... Make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. So let me give you an example of how this this would work out. So there you are. You're doing what is right. You're trying to please the Lord, but you're being afflicted for it. You're suffering. But instead of fearing, instead of worrying, you trust God. You trust his sovereignty. And because of that, you have peace. You have hope. You're doing good. You're rightly responding. And you're hopeful even in suffering. And some people around you, they see this, and they start to wonder, wait a second. Now, how's this possible? I see this person. I see that they're clearly suffering, but they have a lot of peace, joy, and hope. What's up with that? How's that possible? Finally, they break down, they ask you, tell us, they say, why are you so hopeful, even though you're suffering so much right now? And there it is. That there's your opportunity. There's your chance to represent what you believe. So now, defend. Now, now answer why you have hope. This is not talking about explaining all those hard points of theology that you don't know about. This is talking about telling others what you believe and how it gives you hope. Tell them about God. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the gospel and how it gives you peace and hope, even in amidst unjust, suffering. Christian faith is not just an experience. It's not just a way of life. Someone asks you, why are you a Christian? And you say, well, it's just how I choose to live. It's just a way of life. It, it, it works for me. It suits me. Wrong answer. No, it's not. Yes, the Christian faith may, may lead to a certain way of living, but it is essentially based on a, a series of, of truths, and you need to give an accounting of the truth to people when they ask you. Tell people how they too can come to rejoice, even in suffering, by trusting in Jesus and receiving eternal life in him. And understand this, people can can call you to an accounting at any time. Peter's not picturing something formal here where where you're being brought in in front of a judge and there's a courtroom and, and you're being called to defend the faith by yourself. That's not really the picture here. It's an informal setting. He pictures us on trial at all times where anyone, he says, anyone could ask you, To give an account. This is why he says at the beginning always be ready. Always be ready to make a defense. You want to take a cue from the Boy Scouts here? You know their motto? It's a good motto Be prepared. That's their motto. It should be yours. And do you want to perform well when that time comes? And do you want to rightly respond when you get that opportunity? How's it going to happen? Be prepared. Maybe you're here you feel a little insecure about this. You're still not quite sure what you would say in that situation. Part of you struggles with the fear of man. Part of you struggles with just finding the right words. What should you do about it? It's okay if you feel not necessarily up to par. It's not okay if you refuse to do something about it. The solution here is to get prepared, to be ready. Do something about it. Pick a few evenings and and check this out. Turn off the TV for a change. Pick up the Bible. Open it. Start studying it. Find out all the answers to your own questions. Ask yourself, what do I believe and why? Make a defense to yourself and prepare yourself to likewise answer others as to what gives you hope in life, in the gospel. If you want a practical tip, do this. Read the book of Acts. And study every sermon given by Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. There's a bunch. And watch them. They do this over and over again. They show you what it looks like to give an account, to defend the faith, to tell people why you have hope. They did it all the time in the book of Acts to Jews and to Greeks. When the time comes, when someone asks you what you believe and why, if you don't know what to say, if you're not prepared, if you're not ready, you're going to freeze up, you're going to shut down, The chance to witness for the Lord is going to pass you by. You don't want that. That's not the right response. Instead, he says, be ready to defend. Always be ready to make a defense. Verse 15 is not quite finished, though. You see the end? God cares what you say in defense of the truth. He also cares how you say it. That's why Peter reminds us to be ready to defend, yet what? Yet with gentleness and reverence. It's talking about our attitude. Now think about this when someone comes to you and they question your faith, maybe that they even attack your faith, your first response is to attack back. It's to just snap back at them. But that's wrong. You can't bully or scare someone into the faith. Of course, you need to be firm with the truth, but you also need to need to be gentle in your approach. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Do not express arrogance in your words or hostility, but but a meekness and a humility. The point is, look, it's okay to offend people, but let it be the gospel that offends them, not your personality, not your arrogance, not your approach. Take yourself out of the equation and just, just give the gospel. Also, he says, be reverent to God, of course. Remember that God is watching you and he's listening to you speak. So, would God be pleased with what you're saying and how you're saying it as you're having that conversation? Keep God in mind as you testify of him and make certain to reverently reflect his patience and grace when you're talking to others. You know, if you come off as harsh, unloving, ungracious, arrogant, and mean, it pretty much doesn't matter what you say. People don't care, they won't listen. But if you are gentle, reverent, all-around loving, then they can see the gospel unhindered by you and, Lord willing, believe. Nonetheless, this is our fourth response here. Be ready to defend. We're going to move on. Number five. Fifth response out of six. Keep a good conscience. From verse 16. Keep a good conscience. He says this, very straightforward, verse 16, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Here we have another right response for those times when you encounter that unjust suffering, especially for the faith. Keep a good conscience, he says. And this is a big deal, because nothing can can short-circuit your testimony before the world quite like a guilty conscience. Your conscience, of course, it's that God-given mechanism that convicts you of right and wrong. Let me ask, well, what does this have to do with suffering, though? Well, verse 16 is talking about people slandering you and reviling you for your good behavior in Christ. Picture this. Maybe you're at a family get-together or a work party, and people start drinking. They're drinking a lot. They're starting to get drunk. They ask you, hey, so what's the matter? Don't you want to drink with us? And you say back to them, well, no, actually, I don't. Drunkenness is a sin. I'm going to refrain from that. You say it humbly, but still, you just say it. They turn on you. They start ridiculing you. They start reviling you. They start slandering you. So there you are. You're suffering for the sake of that which is good. That's a good thing, for the sake of righteousness. But get this. What if secretly, on the weekends, you really were getting drunk? on your own. What if that were the case? You'd be a total hypocrite. And if those people from work ever found out, you would be totally put to shame. You would never hear the end of it. And at the very least your conscience would not be good or clean in this case, right? Now that that's a problem for several reasons. One, your hypocrisy is wrong in and of itself. That's a whole separate issue. But two, it's also completely short-circuits your ability to witness. Going back to that illustration, and what if that happened, and afterwards uh, another coworker came up to you and said, you know, I watched you, and I really admire the way you, you stood up for what you believe in, even though all those people were slandering you. You know, you're a Christian, right? So, so tell me about that. And secretly you know you're playing the hypocrite. Your conscience is just like testifying against you like daggers in your back, So now you tell me, in this case, do you really think you're going to be able to boldly and confidently testify to that person the true power of the gospel? Not a chance. You see, your guilty conscience takes you out of the game. It shoots you in the foot. You don't want this to happen. and That's what Peter is saying. Instead, he says, keep a good conscience. Keep a clean conscience so that nothing hinders your genuine witness before the world. And if your conscience is clean, then those who who do slander and revile you, those who do persecute you for your faith, they will, in the end, be the ones put to shame, verse 16 says. This picture is the last day that the final judgment, when all those who deny Christ are put to shame, when they realize, oh wait, he is Lord, but it's too late for them. Of course, our hope is that unbelievers see our testimony and they come to salvation like Peter said in 1 Peter 2.12 through our testimony as they slander us. It doesn't always happen, though. And so just know everyone who lines up against Christ in the end gets put to shame. At the very least, make sure that's not you. Make sure you don't line up against Christ. Keep a good conscience. You can do that. By devoting yourself to good and repenting quickly when you sin. That's, that's all there is to it. And only then can you actually suffer for what is right. And only then can you have an effective testimony to those who ask you. And this leads us into our last response now. Number six. Do what is right. Pretty simple. Do what is right. From verse 17. He says, for it is better, if God should so will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter ends this passage with another general principle. Of course, of course it's better to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And what's better? Unjust suffering or deserved discipline? The answer is pretty obvious. So that's why you need to focus on on doing what is right. Don't be that hypocrite who gets persecuted and shamed for his or her double life. And don't be the one who gets disciplined by God for his or her disobedience. Follow God, obey his will. And if he should still will it that you do suffer, at least it will be for that which is good, and at least you can rejoice in that suffering with a clean conscience. Should come as no surprise. The world has always been opposed to the things of God and the people of God. It's true in the past. It's true today. It should also then come as no surprise to find the world persecuting Christians simply for what is right, simply for their faith, simply for following Jesus. And that day comes for you, and it will ensure that you respond rightly. Remember that you are blessed. Do not fear or worry. Trust God's sovereignty. Be ready to defend. Keep a good conscience and do what is right. And before we end here, I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement, especially for all those people who have blown it. What do I mean by this? I've been talking a lot about the possibility of suffering unjustly for Christ. You know, it might happen. For some of you, it already has happened. You already have experienced sufferings, persecutions, afflictions, oppressions for your faith, but you didn't respond rightly. When that time came, you didn't trust God. You didn't represent the faith. You didn't make a defense. You just blew it. You blew your opportunity. It slipped by. You ever feel like that's happened to you? And if so, I want to encourage you with the example of Peter. St. Peter who wrote this letter, writing these words. Peter's such a great example for us because Peter likewise blew it. Remember the night of Christ's arrest. On that night, all the disciples, they all experienced persecution simply because they followed Jesus. Exactly what we're talking about. They suffered purely for the sake of good, of righteousness, of their faith. They all suffered for it, were persecuted for it. Peter included but how did Peter handle all that? Well, he blew it. And today we've talked about these six ways to respond to unjust suffering. Peter got all six wrong on that night. Now think about this. He did not remember that he was blessed in following Jesus. He certainly did, did fear and worry. I mean, a little slave girl put him to flight. He was not trusting God's sovereignty. He was scared for his life. And when he, he was actually asked if he followed Jesus There's that perfect opportunity make a defense. He denied Jesus. That's the exact opposite response that you should make. And because of this, his conscience most certainly was not clean. And he suffered. But it wasn't for doing what is right. It was for doing what is wrong. He blew it. And maybe you think you've blown it. I'm sure it wasn't as bad as Peter. But the encouraging news here is that Peter learned from his mistakes. And so can you. And God forgave Peter and still used him greatly. And God can do the same for you. Later on, after Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, it happened again. There's Peter and the disciples. They're just doing good. They're just preaching the word. But they're made to suffer for their faith. There they are. It happened again. They're being persecuted simply for following Jesus, just like that night a couple weeks before. So, how did Peter respond this time? Well, this time he got it right. I mentioned earlier Acts 3, 4, and 5. He knew now that he was blessed. And so he didn't fear his tormentors or worry about the future anymore. Instead, he trusted and rested in God's sovereignty. He made a ready defense, and he boldly just testified the truth of the gospel without shame. And this time his conscience was very clean. He still suffered but at least it was for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And you may have had a rough path. You may have wrongly responded in the past. You may have blown it every single time. God's not finished with you if you would just endure and then look to him. So be encouraged. Be encouraged for the future. If you've made past mistakes in this arena, let that motivate you to learn the right response all the more. Pursue these Six ways to respond, learn them, practice them, and then come to rejoice like Peter did even when faced with unjust suffering for the sake of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we bow before you and we do rejoice in the hope that we have in you. You have given us hope in a world without any. The hope is not found in riches, not found in relationships, not found in anything but your son Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and eternal life he brings. We praise you for that work on the cross. We thank you for the hope we have. And now now Lord, I pray you'd give us a spirit of boldness to rightly respond when that time comes. It's going to happen. You have promised it. A slave is not greater than his master. We will suffer just as Christ has suffered, and it will come at times unjustly. May we learn the right response from this word in Peter and put it into practice. If any have fallen short, may they rise to the occasion through your grace. May you pick them up and dust them off, and may they rightly represent you in that future trial. We want to bless you. We want to enjoy you, and we look forward to the hope we have. We praise you for these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.